Hello, and welcome back to Keep Digging for Life, your seminary on the go. I am your host, Jason Epps. I will be covering uh, a couple of reviews of the papers that I heard at the Evangelical Theological uh, Society. So, if you would like to hear those lectures in full, you can uh, purchase the MP3. They're about four dollars from the ETS website. So the I'll probably make this into a two-part uh, podcast, starting with um, one that I enjoyed, but that I was a little bit in disagreement of, and the uh, next two. Uh, I would want to cover would be ones that I I uh, thoroughly enjoyed and were right up my alley. Well, yeah, we'll see how this essentially shakes out. I do want to say from the onset, I really enjoyed uh, the experience, particularly uh, meeting people that I had no uh, plan of meeting. Uh, Peter Williams and uh, Dr. Uh, Andrew Abernathy, Dr. Peter Williams, who's the head of Tyndale uh, House in Cambridge, and Dr. Abernathy, who's a uh, former professor friend from Wheaton. So, and just the opportunities of catching up with other professors as well, like Brian Litvin. I, I really enjoyed uh, that opportunity, and I'm going to try and go again next year, but we'll see what God has planned. So without further ado, I will be uh, at first reviewing the apologetic of Old Testament violence. So, sit tight. So like I said before, I'm going to be at first touching on elements of lectures at DTS that I more or less didn't agree with. The first one that I want to cover is, was a paper entitled The Apologetic of Violence in the Old Testament. And if any of you know me, you know, I went, ooh, violence, that's right up my cup of tea. Especially because my uh, potential dissertation topic is about Avad and how it reflects within the Abrahamic Covenant. If you're interested in those ideas, uh, please consult the podcast I did a while um, back about Avad. So the general premise of the uh, paper... Writer, I don't remember his name at the moment, unfortunately. Uh, but his premise was the God of the Bible wasn't being sadistic, which I would agree with. You know, he wasn't being unrealistic. The Canaanites weren't being ruthlessly, you know, murdered out of the blue for no apparent reason. But he, a lot of his 
rationale um, behind that was the fact that the numbers weren't as bad as we thought. You know, a thousand didn't really mean thousand. It just referred to groups. Uh, this didn't really include women and children, only the fighting men. Uh, his main rationale uh, for this was the fact that, look, in the book of Joshua, um, not all the Canaanites are destroyed. And therefore, they weren't completely annihilated. And let me just say from the onset, I disagree about this. First off, um, playing the whole numbers game. Let's just say for a fact that the numbers didn't really mean thousand, which I honestly think they do. The reason why a lot of scholars want to play the thousand family group number game is it plays better for their sensibilities. Like here, his premise of, oh, it wasn't so bad because not as many people died. And you'd still have the issue of people dying and being murdered. Uh, also, uh, one of my biggest, um, well, I'm not necessarily my big, one of my critiques was the fact that to him would be that God wasn't being a vindictive God because the Canaanites were being punished for their sin for 400 years. God makes an explicitly an explicit reference to that in Genesis uh, 15. Also, the reason for the murder of the Canaanites was the fact that they would dilute and... Not necessarily dilute, but uh, dilute the worship of the Israelites. Uh, draw them away, which is exactly what happened. Uh, why, you ask? Because this is the reason that God gives in Deuteronomy. It's not just that he wants to kill them all because he's vindictive. He wants to kill them all to keep the Israelites from becoming like him. And we see this most clearly because Ruth was fully accepted in the Israelite community and she was a part of the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, another critique that I had was in the fact that of his mention that, well, in Joshua and later on, not all the Israelites were destroyed. I would contend that the reason for this is they didn't fully obey God. As is said in Judges. So the fact that they exist is not a matter of what God didn't fully intend. It was a matter of the Israelites' sinfulness. Not fully carrying out his commands. So that was my critiques and summary of it. Now I will... Um, Come back with my ultimate conclusion of what I think, and then dive into the second presentation.
Now for some uh, concluding remarks about the paper. What really bothered me is that the paper's main goal, it seemed like, was to appease our um, modern sensibilities. To make it more easy for us to rationalize. And that seemed to be the major theme throughout his uh, talk and conversation. I, for one, think that that is a, almost a pointless exercise because as we've seen, our modern sensibilities of what is right uh, tend to shift and especially now are not grounded into the biblical um, area. So a lot of his rationale behind it and it's not as bad as we thought. I mean, he... I will concede that there is a possibility he might be right, but his ultimate purpose was so that we can sleep better at night. And ultimately, I think that we need to rest, and God knew what he was doing. And it seems clear that a lot of the biblical data points to the fact that God didn't just arbitrarily wipe the Canaanites out. If you think back to the uh, Battle of Jericho, they had already received... A message uh, that God had uh, destroyed the Egyptians. And in relation to the Egyptians, okay, God gave them an option. They didn't take it. Their hearts were hardened. And I would argue from their own choice. And then God hardened the heart to be in line with that choice, similar to Romans 1. But there was a choice. And the... Egyptians rejected it. Same with Jericho. They had a choice of essentially surrendering. That's what the seven days were for. And obviously, if they would have, like Rahab the prostitute, who was also in Jesus' line, um, which is kind of an interesting thought that Jesus' line is a line of redemption for the Canaanites within his genealogy that was kind of being a foretaste on what he would actually do for the entire world. Ooh, that's an interesting topic. I might delve into that sometime. Hopefully I remembered. <laughs> My point is this, that trying to appeal and appease our sensibilities is a moving target and I would argue almost a waste of time because what matters is not what we think is right it matters what God thinks is right God is the ultimate reference point but without that reference point with our own thoughts and feelings and nothing to ground them what is right shifts for example what used to be the case is it was wrong for a man to marry a man or even for a man and woman to get divorced. That was an, an anathema or to have a child out of wedlock. All of these things were culturally inappropriate. Now they're okay. And all of these components, the reason why they were viewed as culturally Inappropriate, I would argue, is because it goes against the biblical standard. The Bible is against homosexuality, calls it a sin. Not a greater sin, mind you, but still a sin. The 
God's ideal is for one man and one woman to remain married. And God hates divorce. Yes, I know there's that clause in uh, Matthew that Jesus gives permission to divorce, but that is not the ideal that God strives for. And finally, having a child out of wedlock that is um, implied in Deuteronomic law that if a woman were to not be found to be a virgin, i.e. have a child, she... Um, and not married, she would have been put to death because she would have engaged in adultery, especially if it was done in a city. If it wasn't done in a city, if it was done in a country, the man was only put to death because it was assumed the woman screamed. So even the code points to that, and the New Testament puts it all under the umbrella of sexual immorality. So... All that to say, we can't judge whether things are right or wrong by our current cultural standards alone because those are down, bound to shift, especially now. Therefore, trying to rationalize and create a case that's solely based on our cultural sensibilities and just to basically argue, oh, it's not as bad because less people died, seems to me to be a moot argument. Now on to the second paper, which it was a critical restructuring of violence, which you could probably already guess why I wanted to go there, because my main topic again for my dissertation potentially will be on violence in the Old Testament, and I thought, ooh, violence, like that old Fairly Odd Parent show, it's violent, it's educational, but mostly violent. Yay, violence! All right, maybe that's a bit overdone, but... And, and just a note about this. I'm not a... I am not mentally unstable. The reason why I'm, I'm fascinated by this topic of Old Testament violence is it tends to be overlooked. The Bible tends to be whitewashed. We translate words to make them cleaner than they actually are. Take, for example, Elijah and taunt with the prophet of Baal. When Elijah says to the prophets of Baal, maybe he's busy or traveling, that word busy means having a bowel movement. You know, when Paul in... Um, Philippians or Colossians says, I consider all things rubbish. Sorry, that was my service dog, Virgo. He loves to talk. I think he wants to be involved in the conversation. Anywho, when Paul says, I consider them rubbish, he actually is saying the 
word that is used for a curse word in that culture for a bowel movement. But yet we don't translate it that way. On the other hand, our culture is fascinated by Game of Thrones and countless other shows. So it makes the Bible seem to be boring and pale in comparison. So my main goal in this is to just show that the Old Testament is exciting and, you know, is the best story. Exciting story. It's not just boring monk dialogues. And to be perfectly honest, I'm a guy. I love action movies and I love that the Old Testament is the biggest, best action movie of all. So, that is the explanation as to why I'm delving into that subject, in case you were wondering, but that's beyond the point. Now, for this restructuring of Old Testament violence, I need to be perfectly clear. Normally, in EGS, the person reading the paper... And yes, you heard me right, reading the paper. They sit up there and read their paper, which is both good and bad, is the person that wrote it. And afterwards, there's a Q&A. Well, the person that wrote this paper, the restructuring of the Old Testament violence, uh, wasn't able to come because of... COVID, so wasn't really his fault, but it kind of made the situation kind of a little more awkward than it should have been. But, and I will say, I did not stay for the entire thing because I knew from the first couple of sentences that it didn't really fit. This restructuring of the Old Testament violence that he considered, he made clear that it wasn't about physical violence. It was about oppression and marginalizations of groups. Another word for this term is critical theory. Now, I could do an entire podcast on critical theory, but suffice it to say, in the shorthand, critical theory, which is combined in a whole slew of thoughts, uh, common examples are critical race theory, critical gender theory, um, and so on and so forth. Anything that has the term critical, usually with critical theory, has to do with this. Critical theory, in its basic and bedrock, is ground in Marxism. And its intention is not to promote unity, but is to promote disunity and infighting. So that structures can be destroyed and so that uh, power can be wrested into the hands of the smaller group in charge. It's ironic that Marxists claim to be protecting the little people when they're doing the exact thing that they're saying they're not doing. There's a, should be a word for that. Oh, what is that? hypocritical, there might be something stronger than that, 
But regardless, suffice it to say, critical theory now is in vogue, and even the title of ETS this year of Wealth and Poverty lends itself to that. What are my potential problems with critical theory? Well, it's mainly this. It's the fact that it's a distraction from the gospel. Our problems are not our, our race, which, by the way, we're not multiple races. We're multiple ethnic groups. We're all from one, actually two people, Adam and Eve. That's it. And that destroys the issue of, of race right there. And when we call people first by their race and tack on American, I would argue that it is creating a permanent wedge within us so that we see each other in groups and we have infighting each other. We don't see each other as one unit. We see each other as segments. And so in with some people who have good intentions about this, I don't doubt, are trying to appease that, but in actuality, they're making the problem worse. It's better to see us as all Americans from different ethnic groups, but we shouldn't be siphoned off and separated into groups. That creates problems. Uh, so, and one thing that concerns me is Al Mola, the current president of ETS, had a speech and didn't um, mention any of this. He mentioned problems on the future and transgenderism was it but not critical theory. And this is something that I am concerned about because it detracts from the gospel. Because the gospel is not that we are racist and we need education or to pay reparations. The gospel is the fact that we are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God and we need Jesus Christ in order to save us. Is Jesus against um, people being uh, attacking each other for no reason? Absolutely. But to say that this is a systemic problem that everyone has just because of the color of their sin is inevitably race, which is what critical race theory does. And I'm concerned, if left unchecked, that this problem will spread not only um, in the ETS conference, or but but also to seminaries and ultimately to churches that would ultimately dilute the gospel. Now you may be asking why this critical theory is so prevalent in scholastic circles. I think there could be several reasons to it. One, it's the hot topic now and everybody wants to get on the bandwagon. Two, if you don't talk it, talk about it by the side that believes it, you are going to be frozen, marginalized, and ridiculed for not getting into it. So it's safe for everybody to just join the bandwagon and talk about it. In fact, I had some interesting experiences with the issue of white privilege, which falls under this broad umbrella category back when I was um, in 
my master's program and almost got into serious trouble. Because I challenged the existence and validity of white privilege on the grounds that there are successful people who are black and successful people who are white and poor people who are white and poor people who are black. It's not anything inherent to our skin color or ethnicity. Especially in America because we don't have the caste system. And side note, that is a... Yes, we did have problems in the past. But one of the... With uh, civil rights. With people who are black and, you know, people who are white. But the main problem that a lot of the critical theories is they may take something that was at once legitimate and perpetually create this unrealistic angst that does not exist and have people feed on it. So that even the smallest details can make a person feel like they've been violated. I remember hearing once that a black student, you know, was concerned that a teacher called out a white student, called out him for wearing a hat in class, but not a fellow white student. He saw that as a microaggression. Honestly, that just calling out as a racist microaggression almost belittles the real suffering that people in the civil rights movement had to go through when they had to be um, mar really marginalized, prevented from going to places, you know, sprayed with fire hoses. That <laughs> is real racism. I think the problem with our generation is in some ways, we don't know how good we have it. And we want there to be a problem because it kind of feeds into, again, having this quote-unquote victim mentality. And I don't really like bringing this up, but it's becoming so prevalent that I can't ignore it. And that it needs to be said. And, and the tip of the iceberg was the fact that it entered into even my circle of the conservative Evangelical Theological Society. But the more prevalent issue of why critical theory exists in the scholastic realm is it gives them more things to see, more things to talk about, especially if, since a lot of scholars, not necessarily at ETS, don't relate here to authorial intent. What do I mean by authorial intent? Authorial is what the author who originally wrote the text uh, intended. This can be determined by context clues, flow of thought. Good literature would make this clear. And since the Bible is one of the best pieces of literature, authorial and designed to be understood across cultures and generations, 
Authorial intent, for the most part, is generally very clear, but a thought process in hermeneutics lately has been the reader-response method, where the reader can read into the text and determine what it means. Well, if we couple that with critical theory, that just opens up a whole watershed of new things scholars can write about. There's a big pressure in the scholastic world to write new and founding material. What a better way to do that than to just, you know, say things like Naomi and Ruth were lesbians, which is demonstrably false uh, to the text. Naomi had a husband. Ruth had a husband. They cared for each other. But it doesn't mean they were sexually involved with each other. So that is the main reason why critical theory is so prevalent. Because it gives them more areas to write about. And it's flashy and it, it helps them punch their ticket. But if we continue going on the direction and not standing up and speaking out for what the truth of what the Bible says... I weep for the future of ETS and other elements. For if we lose the truth of the gospel, we're left with nothing but platitudes in an empty shell of our own design. And that is the ultimate idol. That is the ultimate shame. I really hope it doesn't come to that. I'm praying regularly that God would revive us. And I hope you would be praying with me. I, next I'm going to conclude this section. Podcast, I mean. All in all, I know this podcast particularly was a little bit more on the negative side but I want to stress that I did enjoy and next week did enjoy the conference and next week I will be bringing you some of the more um, positive things I did enjoy but I couldn't fit them all into one podcast as always please please feel free to email me at keep digging for life at gmail.com, keep digging for life, F-O-R at gmail.com, or leave me a message on Anchor and just tell me some topics that you would uh, like to hear. Um, and yeah, until then, keep digging.